Welcome to The Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Rockmeyer, the humble lycanthrope. And I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is... Murder Coaster. Today we bring you the iconic, the legendary, the quintessential American outlaw, hippie guru, wild man, mystic, pimp, con, and cult leader. The one, the only, Charlie Manson. And in the immortal words of the man himself, they're plagiarizing my dreams, man. But I left them on the bus stop, Jack. <laughs> okay, we're going to assume that you listeners of Murder Coaster already know all about Charlie and the family, the murders, all of that. So we're going to try to give you something different. We're going to open up the doors to the freak show and reveal Charlie Manson's corpse encased in a glass coffin for all to view and adore. Get your selfie sticks ready. At least that was the plan, according to some. So starting with the end, because there's no such time thing as time, man. It's all the same eternal now, forever, forever, for always, as long as one is one, we bring you... Part 1. The Death of Charlie Manson Charles Mills Manson died November 19, 2017, at the Mercy Hospital in Bakersfield, California, of cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure brought on by colon cancer. Like everything else with Charlie Manson, even his last words are disputed and shrouded in controversy and hearsay. Google it, you'll find several versions. But we're going to give you the last thing he told his friend Ben Gorecki. Ready for this, freaks? Because it's beautiful and haunting as hell. Gone in the sky, the dead but never die. Love for all. Now, the rumor is that Charlie's fiance, Afton Elaine Burton, aka Star, a pretty hot 20 something, had long been scheming to get his body when he died so she could enshroud it in a glass coffin as a tourist attraction. Now, come on, tell me you wouldn't have gone to see it. A selfie with Charlie Manson's corpse? You know that's going to get you a lot of likes on Facebook. And yes, folks, you heard me right. If you didn't already know this, Charlie had himself a fiancé in the joint. Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about Afton Burton, a.k.a. Star? Again, Elaine Star Burton. That's a mouthful. So I'm just going to call her Star. It was Manson himself who chose the name Star for her. Not shocking. He named pretty much everyone in his self-designated family. Very on-brand for him. Sources suspect she was born in 1988 or 89, so she's a millennial. Manson himself was in his late 70s and early 80s when they struck up their romance. Yeah, he was like 50 years older than her. And that's on brand for him as well. He always liked them young. Even in his hippie heyday, he was no spring chicken. In 1969, he was 35 years old, while most of the girls in the family were teenagers. He'd tell his peeps back then, go find me some of that young love. So, how did these star-crossed lovers meet? Well, Star's family is from Bunker Hill, Illinois. Her father reports that his daughter first learned about Manson when her high school class was assigned a project to write a report about a famous person. Star's friend chose Charles Manson, which is how Star first heard of him. According to Star's dad, this is where her fascination with Charlie really began. Star says differently in her own interviews, though. She says that she found out about Manson through a movement he founded called ATWA. Air, trees, water, and animals. Star says that she fell in love with his advocacy and his environmentalism. She claims that she didn't even discover his very famous criminal past until much later on. But apparently, when she did discover it, it was not a deal-breaker. She thinks that he's innocent anyway. And just to play the devil's advocate here, I have to ask, innocent of what? Killing Sharon Tate and her friends? 
murdering the LaBiancas? There's no question about it. He's completely innocent of those crimes. That was Tex and all those other crazy girls. Much as the media likes to accuse Charlie Manson of being a serial killer, this is absolutely false. Sometimes I wonder if the media even knows what a serial killer is. As the girls like to say to this day, little Charlie just wanted to play his guitar, man. (laughs) Right. And Star ran his social media and curated web pages where she claimed he was wrongly convicted. She wasn't just his fiancée. She was also his pro bono employee and personal secretary. To circle back around, though, Starr started writing Manson letters when she was a teenager, first in secret, before announcing she was moving out of her parents' house at the age of 19 to live in closer proximity to the prison where he was serving his life sentence. She goes out there. She gets a job at a McDonald's. She lives in a shitty part of town, but none of that bothers her at all. She wants to be near her man, whatever it takes. And if that ain't love and commitment, tell me what is. I'm sure her manager at McDonald's loved it when she showed up to work with her head shaved bald and an X carved in her forehead. So how much time did they spend together? Well, after her move, Star would speak with Manson every day by phone and visit him most weekends. They saw each other for about 10 hours a week. With a life sentence like this, conjugal visits are not on the table, even if the two do get married. Which is absolute bullshit, because Tex Watson fathered four children in prison. Four. And he's the one who actually committed the murders. So, say what you want about Charlie Manson. Whether you think he's guilty or innocent, love him, hate him, this guy could just not get a break. But hey, who knows what they might have gotten away with over the years. Star became, well, a star when stories began to leak about their marriage license. When the marriage license was obtained, she and Charlie had been in communication for about seven years. And at that point, a media frenzy began. Why would this gorgeous young brunette want to marry an 80-year-old man convicted of mass murder. Maybe his dance moves. (laughs) That little guy with all his crazy talk and jive, he really had some kind of charisma. It's undeniable. (laughs) Yep. And the public was both sickened and fascinated. It is often remarked that Star resembles original Manson family member Susan Atkins, aka Sadie. Look up some Star Burton interviews on YouTube and you'll see multiple commenters making this comparison. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I can see it. She definitely has that wide-eyed, crazy smile look, but she really reminds me more of Ruthann Morehouse, a.k.a. Oish, who, in my humble opinion, was easily the prettiest of the bunch. Be sure to check out our Instagram page, fellow freaks, for lots and lots of thick pictures. But uh, anyway... What did Star think of this comparison? What does Star think of Sadie? Well, Star's not a fan of that comparison. And she tells Rolling Stone magazine, that bitch was fucking crazy. Huh. Nothing ironic about that then. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I actually think she hit the nail on the head there. Sadie once told her prison cellmate she was a big fan of Frank Sinatra. So much so that she wanted to skin him alive and make purses from him so everybody could have a little piece of Frank. Because in love, there is no wrong. Remember, before Sadie had even met Charlie, she'd been a topless dancer, a Church of Satan member, and been convicted of armed robbery. She was no innocent Girl Scout. So what did Star's parents think of all this insanity? They said they would never disown her over it. But it was obvious that they weren't exactly thrilled about her choices either. Mom and Dad stated that they didn't have plans to attend that wedding. Star comes from a traditional religious upbringing, but Dad says it's less strict than Star describes it. He denies ever having locked her in her bedroom as punishment, which is something that Star has brought up publicly when discussing her history and in letters to Manson. 
Star had this to say for herself. Quote, yeah, well, people can think I'm crazy, but they don't know. This is what's right for me. This is what I was born for. That's what she was born for, huh? Being Manson's wife? Well, they say announcing your plans is a good way to make God laugh. And the rumor was, sweet little innocent star who fell for Charlie over his environmental ideals had ulterior motives. They say she just wanted to marry him so she could get his corpse when he died, so she could display it as some kind of freak show hustle. And she was doing this in conjunction with Craig Hammond, a.k.a. Grey Wolf, whom some claim is de facto head of the family on the outside. But here's a fun kicker. Supposedly, the reason Charlie wouldn't agree to this plan, he claimed he was going to live forever. So what was the point of what happened to his corpse was moot? Because he was never going to die anyway. Now, we know the idea that Charlie thought he was going to live forever was total bullshit because he'd already made out a couple wills. He'd gone through many illnesses and talked about his passing to family members. There's even a quote from him about becoming more powerful and well-known after his death. But all this was widely covered in the press. It was also strongly insinuated that Grey Wolf was sleeping with Star. Even the notorious reg, the National Enquirer, jumping on that hype and publishing an article with photographs of the two together. Grey Wolf even attacking the photographer when he caught him taking shots of them. But there's something kind of weird here. All this information about Star and Grey Wolf wanting Charlie's corpse as some kind of freak show exhibit was credited as coming from a Daniel Simone. He was a journalist and true crime writer who had written a book about the Manson case entitled The Retrial of Charlie Manson. This book was billed as explosive with all kinds of new information written with Charlie Manson's permission and approved by him. It was going to feature new interviews and exposés on all the gossip with Charlie and his blushing bride-to-be star. This book was being hyped all over, yet it was never even published. Never has been. And as soon as Daniel Simone spread all these allegations to the press, he suddenly disappeared off of all social media, dropped off the face of the earth, seemingly. Supposedly, the Reels documentary, Charlie Manson, The Last Word, is based off the unpublished book. This is uh, the one that is narrated by Rob Zombie. But there's not one mention of Star or her plans for embalming Charlie in a glass casket in this documentary, though Grey Wolf makes a quick appearance as a Manson supporter. There is one incredibly quick shot of Daniel Simone muttering some mundane fact that lasts literally seconds, but he's only billed as author of The Retrial of Charlie Manson. Yeah, the book that never got published, that the documentary was supposedly based on. Does this seem weird to you, Sarah? Huh. Is it weird that this man, who had written this highly hyped tome about the family, suddenly dropped off the face of the earth after he told both Charlie and the press that his fiance was only with him to exploit his corpse for financial gain and that she was screwing his right-hand man? I don't know. That could be a coincidence. It could be. Maybe. Maybe. I'd love to read that fucking book, though. Yeah, but this is Charlie Manson. So shit just keeps on getting stranger because soon there's all kinds of people fighting over that corpse. Yes, the fight over Charlie Manson's corpse. First, there's longtime pen pal Michael Channels, who has a will Charlie wrote where he leaves everything to him. But like any Manson document, it was a weird rambling thing and hadn't been signed by witnesses or a notary public, and had no legal standing. Then there's Charlie's Sons. It sounds like a fun little sitcom, doesn't it? Charlie's Sons. Yeah, I'd watch it. Charlie's Sons. <laughs> First, there's Matthew Roberts, a real character. Kind of a flamboyant musician. His mother was friends with Mary Bruner back in the day, and had evidently engaged in some carnal acts with Charlie. He wrote Manson about it, and Charlie confirmed he knew his mother 
said it was a good possibility that, yes, he was his father. And honestly, the guy looked just like him. They became very friendly, Charlie even writing songs to him. But alas, when a DNA test was performed, it just wasn't a match. His dad must be some other random hippie his mom slept with in the days of free love. Then there's Daniel Arguleus, this poor guy. Born in 1959, he never knew who his real father was. So when DNA testing came out, he submitted his to Ancestry.com, and there was a match. He had a brother out there named Michael Bruner. Only that wasn't his brother's birth name. His birth name was Valentine Michael Poober Manson, the child of Charlie Manson and Mother Mary Bruner. The baby Charlie birthed himself, biting off the umbilical cord and tying it with a bit of guitar string. Imagine submitting a DNA test and finding out Charlie Manson is your father. But it doesn't look like Daniel wanted to put up much of a fight to get the corpse of his infamous father. This, of course, brings us to the previously mentioned Michael Bruner, Mary Bruner's son, who had been adopted by his grandparents as a toddler when his mother went to jail, and he grew up living a nice, straight, normal life. But in a weird twist, he couldn't get the birth certificate with Manson's name on it. Because he was adopted, the birth certificate was sealed, and now the court wouldn't recognize him as an heir without it. Which brings us to our final contender, Jason Freeman, Manson's grandson. His father was Charles Manson Jr., the product of Manson's marriage to Rosalie Willis way back in the 1950s. Unable to cope with the shame and stigma of being Charlie Manson's son, and utterly dejected because Charlie wouldn't answer his letters, Charlie Manson Jr., a.k.a. Jay White, eventually succumbed to suicide shooting himself in the head parked on the side of the road. So Jason Freeman, former professional wrestler, MMA fighter, and grandson of Charlie Manson, won the battle and was given custody of the corpse, which, for all this time, over four months, was kept in a refrigerator and not a freezer, as is protocol for some reason. So... Basically, his body was just sitting there stewing in a pool of its own juices and was now in a terrible state. Ugh, gross. Yes, gross indeed. But don't worry, fellow freaks. It just keeps getting weirder. While not as overtly hilarious as the funeral of Gigi Allen, the cremation of Manson was a spectacle of sorts. It was an open casket wake, and I gotta admit, he didn't look bad at all. I was surprised though I noticed his hands were gloved. Even with all the makeup and mortician's wax, that black swastika on his forehead stood out. A wild cast of characters paid their respects, and many things were laid in that casket with him, including an iron cross and an eagle feather placed over his heart. It was hard to see who all was there from the video footage. A lot of faces are blurred out, and the shots are very selective. I did see Star was there, but only caught a glimpse of her helping push the casket into the pyre. Grey Wolf, of course, was present, draping a Confederate flag over the coffin. Bunches of Manson's pen pals, who went from crying inconsolably to shaking with rage when the preacher dared presume Manson's guilt. Yeah, I have to admit, I found that preacher to be a little insensitive myself. I mean, come on, the guy's dead, and you're preaching to his loved ones and family. Show some respect. But a thing that really cracked me up was Manson's grandson, Jason Freeman, his straight-laced wife, said, Some of these Manson followers are kind of cuckoo. Yeah? You think so? What were you expecting? <laughs> and now we get to the saga of the ashes. So, after the cremation... Jason Freeman invited the band of Mary Manson peeps deep into the forest to a truly beautiful place of pristine natural beauty to help spread the ashes by a roaring river. And in true Manson family fashion, the participants were soon covering themselves in the ashes, rubbing it into their faces and yep, stealing the stuff. Come on. What did you expect? In particular, this character, Tony Miller, 
claimed to have stolen a whole mess of the ashes. He, in turn, sold the stolen ashes to tattoo artist Ryan Gillikin, a.k.a. Ryan Almighty, who is also a pen pal of Manson's. Ryan, famous for doing paintings in his own blood, did a series of artworks with the stuff and famously mixed the ashes with tattoo ink and did a helter-skelter face tattoo and forehead X, eventually going on to tattoo the guy's wife with the ashes as well. Head over to Instagram to see the pictures. And you know what? He only charged $600 for those tattoos, for that, well, the original tattoo. Isn't that a deal? Sarah, you're a tattoo artist. How much would you have charged if you had hold of Manson's ashes? That's a good question. The current value of Manson's estate is estimated to be at least a million dollars. And that figure has been climbing over the years. His belongings have only increased in value as America's hunger for true crime has risen in the past few years. Well, what is it they say? The market sets the price, right? I'd definitely try to get more than 600 bucks for him. Hell, some celebrity tattoo artist might charge $600 for just that portrait. Ashes not included. And now comes the final twist. Ends up that guy who stole Manson's ashes? Well, he's not that stand-up of a guy. Can you believe that? He was arrested for multiple rapes and sexual assaults and now claims he got the ashes he sold out of his barbecue pit. <laughs> Fuck. You think that guy with the helter-skelter face tattoo just has hot dog ashes embedded in his flesh? They say hot dogs are what? Lips and assholes? Oh, God. Never mind then. $600 is a total ripoff for lips and assholes. A pack of 10 hot dogs is what? Like... Four bucks maximum? No way. (laughs) (laughs) And all of this must have been much to the chagrin of Zach Baggins of Ghost Adventures, who bought one of the paintings with Manson's ashes for his haunted museum in Las Vegas. But regardless or not of whether those were or weren't Manson's ashes, Ryan Almighty is a fabulous artist, so everyone should be happy. But if you think the death of Charlie Manson was a freak show, just wait, fellow freaks, for we're also going to talk about how the CIA, MKUltra, and how even the Kennedy assassination were all tied up with old Charlie as well. That's right, fellow freaks. It's time for part two, the CIA, MKUltra, and the Kennedy assassination. Right. If you thought all that was convoluted and strange, get ready for some truly surreal shit. We're getting into some deep conspiracy theory territory here. As Charlie liked to say, Christ on the cross, the coyote in the desert, it's all the same thing, man. It's impossible to discuss the involvement of the CIA, MKUltra, Operation Chaos, and yes, even a possible connection to the Kennedy assassination, without alluding to Tom O'Neill's book entitled Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Published in 2019, O'Neill's book is the culmination of 20 years of research into the Manson murders. If it seems like the Manson case is something one could spend an entire lifetime Researching without uncovering every detail, O'Neill's magazine article turned 500-page book is hard evidence of that. Yeah, you heard that right. Tom O'Neill was originally contracted to write an article about the 30th anniversary of the Manson murders by Premier Magazine, the day after O'Neill's 40th birthday. What was supposed to be a 5,000-word essay written in three months on a brief trip from New York to L.A., instead became a 500-page book written in 20 years, an undertaking that would spell permanent L.A. residency for Mr. O'Neill. Chaos was finally published when Tom was in his early 60s. And then I have here what will probably be the least surprising fact that we present today. We here at Murder Coaster are pretty avid readers. Sadly, we don't have time to summarize even a fraction of the contents of chaos. But fellow freaks, if you're looking for a book that dares to poke holes 
in the narrative of Vincent Bugliosi's famous book, Helter Skelter, a book that explores the real relationship between Manson and Terry Melcher, a book that highlights police carelessness and legal misconduct and dissects the lingering impact of the Manson murders in cultural conversation, well then, you just really should seek this book out for yourselves. While it's hard to describe chaos to anyone without sounding like a raving conspiracy theorist, O'Neill himself avoids making any accusations based on the records that he uncovers. He presents every document and cites every source for his reader. The book includes 60 pages of notes, giving readers full liberty to draw their own conclusions. And now, on with the show. It's time to talk LSD-fueled mind control. Oh, you think I'm talking about Manson and the girls? No, we meant the LSD-fueled mind control experiments conducted by the CIA. So, if you're familiar with Netflix's original series, Stranger Things, you've already had some basic background knowledge on Project MKUltra. Far from fictional, though, this project in human experimentation was actually conducted between 1953 and 1973 in our very own dimension. Every bit as bonkers as it is presented in pop culture, Project MKUltra administered LSD to hapless research subjects for science. Some of its goals included synthesizing the ultimate truth serum, hypnosis, forcing confessions through brainwashing and torture, creating the perfect assassin, also known as the Manchurian candidate, and implanting false memories. I bet you're wondering how all this can be legal. Just know that technically, it was not. Part of the fascination with the Manson family, I feel, rests on our desire to answer the question, what makes otherwise docile people turn into remorseless killers? And what's a scarier answer? Reprogramming by a sinister government experiment? Or that any of us are inherently capable of that kind of brutality, given the right circumstances? MKUltra's reach was vast. Project experiments were conducted beneath unassuming facades. This was accomplished in plain sight using a series of front organizations. Though it helped that not everyone working in these institutions was aware of underlying CIA involvement. These front organizations were used in addition to soliciting unwitting participants through colleges, hospitals, prisons, pharmaceutical companies, and even a San Francisco brothel equipped with two-way mirrors so CIA agents could watch everything that went down. Yeah, that's right. The CIA had a brothel with two-way mirrors where they dosed, dosed unsuspecting Johns with LSD and watched as they lost their minds while engaging in sex acts with prostitutes. You know, you can't make this stuff up. Well, one thing we might be asking is, how is Manson tied up in this? Let's start with some speculation and move on to some harder evidence. As true crime enthusiasts undoubtedly know, Charles Manson spent much of his early life in federal prisons and institutions. By the time of his release in March 1967, he had spent more than half of his 32 years of life in prison for breaking federal laws. While Manson never spoke about any type of experimentation that was conducted on him when he was incarcerated, his federal parole file shows that he did speak about encountering doctors within the federal prison system in the late 50s. Essentially, Manson had stated that he did not trust these federally appointed medical professionals and expressed confusion as to what exactly it was they were doing. One such suspicious doctor, mentioned by Manson on several occasions, was a psychologist by the name of Dr. Hartman. Dr. Hartman? Any relation to you, Sarah Hartman? Your bloodline involved in the murder of Sharon Tate? Thankfully, after placing myself under thorough and completely unbiased investigation of myself 
by myself. My family was declared completely innocent. And while there were three generations of government worker Hartmans who were found to be genetically related to me, every single one of them turned out to be a mailman. Our aforementioned author, Tom O'Neill, notes in his 2020 interview with Joe Rogan that Manson did not specify a first name for his Dr. Hartman. And uh, this is episode 1459 of the Joe Rogan podcast, for those who are curious. In this same interview, O'Neill goes on to explain that there was a Mortimer Hartman who practiced at the same time in and around the Beverly Hills area. Mortimer Hartman specialized in using LSD to treat patients' mental health. Cary Grant was one of his more notable patients. O'Neill delicately posits that this Hartman could have potentially come out of Project MKUltra. But we were also able to unearth a story about a Texas psychiatrist, Dr. Lee Hartman, written by his grandson, Ben Hartman, for the Texas Tribune on July 5th, 2017. Within this piece, Ben shares a 1960 newspaper photo that shows his grandfather, Dr. Lee Hartman, supervising an experiment in which a Texas prison inmate is given a dose of LSD. The caption on that photo reads, quote, bodily functions of insane convict are measured. Dr. Lee Hartman, Baylor psychiatrist, Injected inmate with LSD. Injected. Injected with LSD. Yowza. That's got to be a rush. (laughs) And in a subheading, quote, new drug that causes insanity used on prisoners who volunteer. It causes insanity and you need volunteers? Well, sign me up. (laughs) Per Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, Manson is arrested by Laredo, Texas police in the early summer of 1960 for violating the Mann Act, which was related to human trafficking and prostitution, and later Manson's return to California. There's a very narrow window of time here where Dr. Lee Hartman and Manson could have run across each other in this case. But this lead seems to be the least plausible. But could Manson have encountered either of these Dr. Hartmans in the context of the prison system? Could he have participated in their research? It is possible. Did he encounter either of these researchers during his early life in prison? The answer to that question remains inconclusive. Too flimsy a connection, you say? Well, that's fair. O'Neill evidently thought so, too, as while it was worth a mention in an interview, he did not document it in his book. The book, as previously said, is incredibly concrete. There were plenty of other figures in Manson's life with ties to the CIA and MKUltra that O'Neill did select for inclusion, and there's documentation to spare for all of these, including a published research study. Now, this is the part I found most fascinating in the book Chaos. As previously mentioned, by 1967, Manson, then 32, had just been paroled after spending half his life in prison for a laundry list of federal offenses. Following his parole, Manson eventually meandered north to San Francisco, where he immediately ate acid, caught a Grateful Dead concert, before settling into the hippie life on Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco and Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. It's worth noting how unorthodox it is that an individual on federal parole would be granted permission to travel at all, especially to the epicenter of the drug and counterculture world. But we'll get back to why that's important later. After arriving in the Bay Area, Manson was assigned to the caseload of parole officer and Berkeley doctoral student Roger Smith. At Berkeley, Roger Smith was in the process of writing his dissertation with two primary areas of focus, the study of gangs, collective behavior and violence, and the relevant impact of various drugs. When he wasn't working on his doctorate, our Roger Smith 
primarily operated out of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, where he had an office. And it was here, in this office, that he collaborated with the founder of the clinic, Dr. David Smith, no relation, a medical doctor with a pharmacology background. So we've moved on from the two Hartmans to the two Smiths. Try to keep up, fellow freaks. Remember those MKUltra front organizations that Matthew mentioned? The team of unrelated Smiths received federal funding, direct from the CIA no less, to research the recreational drug use of the patients at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. It was at this clinic that Charles Manson attended his scheduled meetings with Pearl Officer Roger Smith, and it was here that the Manson family received treatment for STDs and pregnancy. Mary Bruner, for example, received prenatal care here while she was pregnant with Manson's son, Valentine Michael Pooh Bear Manson, a.k.a. Michael Bruner, who we mentioned earlier. All right, let's get back to talk about Manson's relationship with this parole officer, Roger Smith, because this is what I find absolutely bonkers. Smith's role as a parole officer, as well as a researcher, allowed him the position and the motivation to provide a certain level of immunity to Charlie. Certainly, Charlie did plenty to violate the terms of his parole. He's wandering around freely, freely with no job, leaving not only the state, but the country headed off into Mexico. He's stockpiling weapons, hanging out with ex-cons, and he's actually arrested several times for having sex with the underage Ruth Ann Morehouse. There's a public nudity charge he's wrapped up in. He's busted for smoking weed and involved in thievery of all kinds, from stolen credit cards to stealing cars to converting to dune buggies. Like, what in the actual fuck? How is Charlie able to get away with all this shit and not end up back in the clinker? Is Roger Smith the world's most incompetent probation officer? Or does he and his field have something to gain from allowing Manson to remain on the outside? Although he had the authority to send Manson back to prison, Roger Smith never officially reported any of Charlie's infractions, and there were shit tons of them. And in another case of well-documented unorthodox conduct, Roger Smith and his wife were actually designated as the foster parents of Mary Bruner's baby, yes, Manson's son, for a period of about eight weeks in 1968, when she and three of the other Manson women were briefly sent to jail. Now, granted, at that point, Roger Smith had retired as Manson's probation officer. But if anything, doesn't that fact make this occurrence all the weirder? Aha, yes, here we go. The Witches of Mendocino. Essentially, what happened was, Sadie, Mother Mary Bruner, and a few of the other girls had been sent to Boonville, this tiny little town up in the redwoods of Mendocino, by Charlie, to recruit people for the family and establish a base behind the redwood curtain. The girls lured a few underage boys to their house and dosed them with LSD and tried to entice them into an orgy. But supposedly, the girls were really stinky and weird. And not to mention, there's these babies around. I mean, come on. This is one strange scene. And of course, one of the kids went screaming from the house, running to his mother, yelling that his legs had been turned into snakes by witches. <laughs> I, I love this shit. <laughs> anyway, the cops were called, busted them, and the girls were subsequently arrested and charged for, with contributing to the delinquency of minors and possession of dangerous drugs. What's weird is that Roger Smith and his wife, they caught wind of this, and then they proceeded to drive to Mendocino, where they petitioned the court for foster custody of Mary Bruner's baby. Again, this is Manson's son. While Mary got her shit sorted out, and the court actually granted their petition, and the icing on the cake, these four Manson women were all given probation, not sentenced, after a recommendation for probation was submitted by none other than, you guessed it, Roger Smith himself. 
and the witches of Mendocino go free. <laughs> Manson and his family were pretty frequent flyers of that hate Ashbury free medical clinic, too. So much so that the staff always recognized the girls when they showed up. One assistant researcher employed there, a young Mr. Alan Rose, took it upon himself to visit the Manson family's Los Angeles compound to see it for himself. You know, for research. A friend of Manson's probation officer, this Alan Rose, was employed by the free clinic, but technically he had no formal medical training. Alan was known to be a pretty reserved and awkward guy. Once introduced to the Manson girls, though, Alan became really enamored with them, maybe even a little bit obsessed. There was an occasion, prior to the murders, of course, in which a few of the girls landed briefly in jail, and clearly this happened from time to time. Alan's co-workers observed that he made efforts to visit the girls daily, and he made sure that when he went to see them, he always brought them candy and cigarettes. Yes, he was uh, very intent on his studies. Alan Rose arrived at the Manson family compound where he ate acid and participated in the family orgies. Again, for very professional research reasons, obviously. Oh, yes. Eating LSD and getting involved in orgies is very professional reason. After four months of this grueling research, was this a business trip? Was this a vacation? Mr. Alan Rose eventually returned to his office job in San Francisco, where he and David Smith, the clinic founder, co-authored the first scholarly study of the Manson family. And this study was called The Group Marriage Commune, a Case Study. And uh, you can read this article for yourselves online, dear freaks. But like so many scholarly articles, it's usually behind a paywall. Manson and his followers were not mentioned by name in the study. But Alan Rose himself is listed as a quote-unquote psychologist. Though in reality, he had no such credentials. The two authors avoid any future responsibility for the later murders by including a statement that claimed during the planned observation that the group had, quote unquote, expressed a philosophy of nonviolence. While the paper does mention Charlie's psychological abuse as a manipulation tactic to account for his hold over the girls, the two researchers avoid even a footnote regarding LSD use. Yes, their true area of expertise goes entirely unmentioned. Peers in the field of psychology have gone on to question Ellen Rose's level of impartiality in this study, and that's probably for a few reasons. What? Gasp. You know, all this makes me wonder, where were the Manson family getting all this acid? They'd really been ostracized from the main players at the time with their weirdness but they seem to always have a lot of LSD on hand. Was it being funneled to them from the CIA, either directly or indirectly? The truth is, we'll never know. Following the Manson murders, a widely publicized trial, Americans faced a new reality where hippies were suddenly a pretty threatening group. No longer regarded as harmless, hippies were now the subject of suspicion in the court of public opinion they became a group to be feared. But prior to the horror that would soon unfold, the U.S. government was already distrustful of hippies, and we see that in large part when we look at Operation Chaos. And what was Operation Chaos, you may be asking? Good question, because it was beyond secretive and was highly covered up. We don't know much, but here's what we do know. Operation Chaos was another American government espionage project that took place from 1967 to 1974. The objective of Operation Chaos was to uncover possible foreign influence on domestic race, anti-war, and other protest movements. Project Chaos aimed to neutralize revolutionaries within these left-wing socio-political movements and this included the hippie subculture. Operation Chaos trained its informants to infiltrate these left-wing groups, not only to collect data, but also, allegedly, 
to incite violence within these groups. Which brings us to our next major player in the unfolding drama. Another researcher on staff at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic was known as Lewis Jolly West. Jolly West conducted studies about LSD and drug use among hippies as well. West happened to be a CIA psychologist with a background in deprogramming victims of brainwashing. His professional history included employment directly under CIA chemist and head of the MK Ultra project, Sidney Gottlieb. Old Jolly West had a solid knowledge of LSD and its effects. He contributed to a 1967 psychiatry textbook wherein he writes that LSD is, quote, a remarkable substance, unquote, known to leave its users unusually susceptible to a loosening of ego structure. Language that sounds reminiscent of Manson's preaching to his followers to negate their egos and cease to exist. Jolly West took it upon himself to renovate a Victorian home adjacent to the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, and he was later heard to describe it as his fake hippie crash pad. This was designated as a semi-permanent observation post for his work, and as such, the Haight-Ashbury Project was born. To ensure an authentic feel, this Victorian home was decorated with posters, flowers, and bright paint. In other words... It was groovy and far out, man. (laughs) West dressed and presented himself as a hippie and instructed the six graduate students he employed to do the same. He and his graduate students would lure young passerby and patients of the free clinic into this house. Visitors were encouraged to stay as long as they liked, as long as they were okay with graduate students taking copious notes about it. Funding for Jolly West Hate Ashbury Project was also determined to have originated from none other than the CIA. Probation officer Roger Smith directed patients of his free clinic to go ahead and pay West a visit. In an interview with O'Neill, Roger Smith says that he never even bothered to find out the true nature of Jolly West's research, but only assumed that West, like himself, was, quote, diagnosing psychedelic patterns in the counterculture. The six grad students also expressed confusion about the nature of their work in diaries preserved following the conclusion of that research. All right, hold on to your tinfoil hats, folks, because it's not a true conspiracy theory unless we can also find a way to tie it back to the Kennedy assassination. And yes, we can. We sure can. Because who is Jolly West other than Jack Ruby's psychologist? That's right, the psychologist of the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald just two days after Oswald was accused of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Jack Ruby fired the fatal bullet point-blank into Oswald's chest, but supposedly, when the police pinned him to the ground, he had no memory of what he had done And he just yelled, what am I doing here? What are you guys jumping on me for? Ruby hired Hubert Winston Smith. This is our third Smith. Again, no relation to any of the other Smiths to represent him. One of his first recommendations was to request a new psychological examination of Jack Ruby. And it was his suggestion that it be conducted by none other than Jolly West, a man with a prior history of using hypnotism and a truth serum, which was sodium pentothal, to help brainwashed American prisoners of war recover their memories. It was Hubert Smith's hope that Jolly West could do the same for Jack Ruby's recollection of his crimes. So on April 26th, 1964, West arrived at the Dallas County Jail to examine Jack Ruby. The pair were alone in the cell for 48 hours, and when West finally emerged, Ruby had experienced an acute psychotic break that appeared to all the world to be unshakable and fixed. There are no witnesses whatsoever 
to what transpired between those two men in those two days. And what does all of this mean? No sense makes sense, man. In love, there is no wrong. Jesus on the Christ, coyote in the desert, it's all the same thing, man. Always is always forever. The illusion has been just a dream. Well, I think what my co-host here is trying to say is that the political implications of this are above our pay grade as lowly carnies. Hopefully none of you got whiplash trying to keep up with all the twists and turns we just endured here at Murder Coaster. Well, there you have it. The death of Charlie Manson, the Manson family and the CIA, and how there's even a connection between Manson and the assassination of JFK. Whoa, what a web of insanity. The 60s, man. Just wow. You know, I have to point out how bad the CIA failed in their mind control efforts. Far from LSD being able to control and brainwash, it had the exact opposite effect. The acid the CIA flooded America with in the late 50s and early 60s ended up in the hands of people like Ken Kesey, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, who held wild parties they called acid tests where the Grateful Dead would play. These were the seeds that started the hippie movement and led to everything from the sexual revolution to vast social and environmental causes and anti-war movements. An overall general apathy and malaise with the straight bourgeois life defined by 1950s America. So, far from controlling the population, the CIA inadvertently started an anarchist revolution, the exact opposite of what they intended. The freedoms and incredible social awakening of this period are still felt today and literally shape the world we live in. So, good job, feds. You created the hippie movement. And while I personally don't think the CIA had anything to do with the planning and orchestration of the death of Sharon Tate, her unborn child, and all the other unfortunate people that were murdered, it definitely wouldn't have happened without the CIA. Freaky tale of murder and mayhem. We'll catch you later, fellow freaks, for more carnage and insanity here on Murder Coaster. And hey, fellow freaks, we want to hear from you. Got a suggestion? A case we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Let us know. Send us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next time.